Well, good morning, everyone. As Tommy said, I just want to welcome you to the Medina East Campus of Grace Church. Uh, Just super thankful to be here with you this morning. Uh, My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here at Medina East. And I just got to ask, in light of this uh, soon-to-be 50-degree day, how's everybody in the auditorium doing this morning? How you doing? Right, right. So uh, I said last week that I tend to be a very insecure person. So how is everyone in the auditorium doing this morning? Yeah! That's what I'm talking about. And for those of you who are on live stream, thank you so much for uh, checking us out today and connecting with this conversation. How are you doing? All right. And I'm assuming that in your uh, family room or wherever you're at, we got a bunch of big woohoos and some fist, fist bumps and fist pumps. That's awesome. So again, as Tommy mentioned, uh, I'm excited to be here with you this morning uh, as we begin to dive into uh, a series that we uh, initiated last week. We had an introductory conversation last week uh, in the series that you could see we have titled, according to the graphic that's behind me, a series that we have uh, titled Formed, An Abiding Life with Christ. Formed an abiding life with Christ. And so here's the thing. If you missed last week's conversation, um, you're actually in luck because you can catch up on that. Like Tommy said, if you go out to our website, medinaeast.gracechurches.org, you can catch up on that conversation and get caught up on some of the big ideas or the main themes or the goals like the destination that we are establishing or that we have established for ourselves uh, in this series. You can do that as well as check out any other series throughout the history of the Medina East Campus. would encourage you to avail yourself of that uh, as you see fit. But uh, suffice it to say, for today, uh, let me just give you a brief recap or a summary to get us all on the same page as to what we're doing or what our big goals are in this series. So essentially formed, an abiding life with Christ is all about God's great goal for our lives. In other words, we asked the question last week, what does God want for our lives more than anything else? What is the destination that God has in mind? Like when God closes his eyes and envisions what he wants for us as human beings, what is that? And we had said last week that actually God's goal for us, every single human being, every single person, is to be formed or to be shaped into the image of Jesus Christ. In other words, what God wants for us more than anything else in our lives is for us to become more and more like Jesus. And we actually looked last week at one single verse in the Bible, in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 29. And actually, it wasn't even just a full verse. It's like half a verse, one sentence in the Bible. And we unpacked that, and Romans eight twenty nine said that for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So we said that God's goal for our lives is to be conformed, shaped, fashioned into the image of Christ. Now, as we looked at that verse last week, or that half a verse last week, we really drew out what we called were three essential ingredients to understanding how that spiritual growth or becoming more like Jesus actually happens. And here's what we said, just to catch us all up. We said that in Romans 8, 29, you could see that when it comes to spiritual growth and becoming like Jesus, we know that God is the one himself who owns the process. Uh, In other words, God employs all his power All his energy, all his authority, his character, his creativity, he takes the responsibility to get us on the path toward the destination of Christ's likeness. He takes that on himself, and he pushes us and encourages us to the goal. That's his responsibility that he takes. However, we said that, number two here, God does not do this unilaterally. He doesn't just go it alone. He doesn't just kick us down the path. He actually takes all of that power, all of that authority and that ability, and he invests it in us that we are invited to participate in relationship in the process of our spiritual growth. 
that if we imagine spiritual growth as a pathway to the destination of being like Jesus, that God, in effect, walks arm in arm with us down that pathway. And then we said, lastly, that at the end of the line, that Jesus is the goal. And again, what God wants for us more than anything else in our lives is for us to become like Jesus. And last week, we used a simple little, maybe silly analogy with Play-Doh. And we said that in the same way that a master craftsman is able to take a pliable material like Play-Doh and establish a template for that, in the same way that that master craftsman is able to work and to shape that pliable dough or that Play-Doh into the template, that when that master craftsman is done with all his power and ability, that dough will look exactly like a carbon copy of the template. And so if God is the master craftsman, if we are the pliable material invited to participate in that process, and if Jesus is the template, he's the goal that God, again, wants that for us more than anything else. And so as we continue in the conversation today, and as we reflect back on these kind of three ingredients of understanding how spiritual growth and becoming like Jesus works, uh, we might be tempted to think, if you look at this, and as we unpack that from Romans 8, 29, we might be tempted to think that this is pretty simple, right? That this is a very straightforward process. That if we had these three, if we believe these three things, and if we were the pliable material and knew that God was the master craftsman and that Jesus was the goal, then we're good, right? Then we're good. Like, like that anybody at any point in time could just decide that this is what they want for their lives, that they would just believe these things, and then it would just magically, automatically, it would just happen, right? Now, I know for many of us in the room who call ourselves Christ followers, we know that when we look back in our lives, it doesn't exactly work that way. It's not as simple and straightforward as that. And why is that? Well, I think it's because we have yet to, in this series, we have yet to account for another ingredient that is absolutely a part of this process that often hinders and obstructs us from becoming more and more like Jesus. And that ingredient that we have yet to account for is something that the Bible over and over again calls sin, that the Bible calls sin. So welcome to the Medina East campus this morning. It's sin day at Medina East, right? So listen, there, there are two messages that I know that we all groan when we come into church and we hear the first is the message about circumcision, right? <laughs> because that message is just painful. Okay, there it is. So we, we don't like the circumcision message, and we also don't like the sin message. So it's not Sunday today, it's sin day at the Medina East Campus. Now, now listen to me. Um, for all that we could say about sin, both with what the Bible tells us about it as well as from our experience of being really, really good at it. For all that the Bible says about sin, let me just see if I can summarize sort of like at a high level the biblical teaching of what sin is and why it becomes an obstacle and a hindrance to our spiritual growth to becoming like Jesus. Let me just put it this way. I'm gonna unpack this statement here a little bit as we go along. So in the Bible, I think when you see, when you look at sin, sin is cast as a pervasive power. In other words, sin is not simply the bad stuff that we do to transgress or to breach God's laws or his decrees. It's more than that. Sin is cast as a power that has authority, that has influence, that is like this despotic, tyrannical ruler that inflicts his influence on all of us. And that this power is so pervasive that it shows up in our relationship, in the breach of relationship between us and God in the breach of relationships that occur in our lives with one another, 
as well as in ourselves internally, we're broken and we're messed up. So sin is cast as this pervasive power that enslaves, now catch this, every person. That, that there is not a single individual that has been born, save one, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit, that doesn't come under the power and the influence and the authority of this enslaving sin in their life. And that sin is this pervasive power that enslaves every person, and that sin in the Bible is rooted in the idea, now catch this, note this, the idea of rebellion against God, resistance to God, specifically resistance against God and his desires for what he wants for our lives, including becoming conformed in the image of Christ, what he desires for our lives and the world that he created around us. And you can actually see this if you trace it. It goes all the way back to human origins in the book of Genesis, the first several chapters of the Bible where God creates human beings in his image. And the idea of being created in God's image is that we were designed like beautifully and artfully crafted to reflect the goodness of God's character and his attributes into the world around us. Guys, check this out. I mean, God created you and me with the intention that we would radiate out his amazing qualities into the world to produce flourishing and goodness on his behalf in the world around us. And yet, if you flip the page from Genesis 1 and 2 to Genesis 3, you quickly discover that sin, this pervasive power, has now thwarted that good agenda for God in our lives. So much so that rather than serve the creator's good purposes in the world, sin has wreaked havoc and caused us to assume and believe that the world and everything in it exists to serve us. And this sin produces in us all kinds of destructive and dysfunctional qualities. It creates within us pride, arrogance, self-centeredness, neglect of others, especially those who are hurting and those who are marginalized. All these other thoughts and actions that place ourselves at the center of the universe rather than God. We place ourselves at the center of the universe and will at the very least marginalize God to the outskirts of that universe if we don't just evict him from that universe entirely. So again, congratulations for being here this morning. You are at your very core, super self-centered and messed up, jacked up beyond your ability to fix it. Well, at least if you're a guest, I guess you can go out to the Welcome Center. We got, we got a gift for you. It's a coffee mug. Maybe that's a little bit of a consolation prize for you this morning for being here on Sin Day. And for the rest of us, well, I guess the coffee's free, so that's a thing. I mean, you can always go out and get free coffee there, okay? So listen, I totally get it. When you come in and you show up on Sin Day, I get it. It's, it's awkward and it's uncomfortable. We, we don't, I don't want to acknowledge the fact that I am this messed up. But here's what I love about the Bible. The Bible is not going to shield us from these realities of who we really are at our core. It's not gonna do that. And just real quick, this is another reason to love God's word, isn't it? I mean, if you really think about it, that God doesn't, the Bible, God, God's word through the Bible doesn't pull any punches with us. It loves us too much to just give us a whole bunch of empty, positive statements and platitudes, knowing that we have this sick, twisted, dark power, disease within us. No, I mean, this is another reason to see that the Bible's gonna give it to us straight and it's gonna be straightforward with us. Another reason that the Bible, guys, 
is so incredibly trustworthy. We can count on it to tell us who we really are and to take us to where God really wants us to go. It is so trustworthy. And it is that same Bible that over and over again as it talks about sin, what it'll do is it'll use various metaphors or analogies or like illustrations to describe the power of sin in our lives and the way it materializes in our behaviors, our thoughts, and our attitudes. Now, now I find this interesting. One of the ways that the Bible describes the negative consequences and the impact of sin in our lives, one of the ways it uses to describe that is with this metaphor of a hard heart, a hard heart. So the Bible describes the negative impact of sin as existing in us or in people, hardness of heart. Let me just give you, this is very interesting to me. Let me just give you a couple samples of the way that the Bible speaks of this idea of people with hardened hearts. In Psalm 17:10, David, who is writing here, is writing about the wicked. He's writing about his enemies, those who oppose him and those who oppose the God whom David is called to serve as king over Israel. What does he say? These wicked people, they close up their, what? Say it, callous, hard hearts, and their mouths speak with arrogance. Later on in scripture, the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 3, 7 He speaks on behalf of God. He speaks the words of God. And he says, no, that wickedness and that rebellion, that hardness of heart doesn't just exist in those who are opposed to Israel, but it actually infects the people of Israel itself, themselves, the people of God themselves. Yahweh says through Ezekiel, but the people of Israel, Ezekiel, they're not going to listen to you. Why? Because they're not willing to listen to me. Why are they unwilling to listen to God? Why are they resistant to God's good word and his purposes in their life? Well, all the Israelites are hardened. They're obstinate. Later in Israel's history, Zechariah says these same people, these, the same people of God made their hearts as hard as flint. Like, I don't know how hard flint is, but my assumption is that's super hard, right? They made their hearts as hard as flint. What is this hardness of heart described as? They're not listening to my voice. My word of concern and love for them in their lives. They're not listening to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. Even Jesus in Matthew 10, 5, as he is in a little bit of a debate with the religious leaders of Israel in his day, who were saying that Moses in the law in the Old Testament had given the people of Israel divorce as a command. And Jesus says, no, 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 it's not a command. It wasn't a command. It was a concession. Like God never wanted you to engage in divorce, but he only did it as a concession to you. Why? Well, because your hearts were hard. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. And so we can see over and over again in scripture, sin and its impact in our lives is described as creating a callousness a calcification, stony hearts in rebellion against God, resisting God's goodwill and his desires that he has for us in the world and in our lives. Now, I think this is interesting. So think with me real quick, we mentioned about that Play-Doh analogy that we used last week, right? So with the Play-Doh analogy, we have the pliable material, right? And we have the master craftsman who then takes the template, again, 
And the master craftsman is able to take a pliable material to work it into the mold very carefully. And when he's all said and done, the pliable material will look exactly like the template. But my question is, what happens when that pliable material becomes hardened? When the environment around it, when the air that it's living in calcifies it, makes it calloused. If there's one thing I know about hardness like this is that it's not pliable. And you're like, you can't get this kind of teaching anywhere else, right? Pastor Seth said that hardness is not pliable. (laughs) But you see, literally, the only thing the master craftsman absolutely cannot do with this material is form it into the shape of the mold, into his desires for it. The master craftsman only has recourse to do one of two things. He can either introduce water or some other agent into the hard material to make it pliable again, or the only other choice he has is to throw that hard material out because it has been rendered unfit for the good purposes that he designed this to be. Now, let me just tell you, I get it. Like, not many of us, not all of us were walking in here today with a comprehensive theology of sin or a comprehensive understanding of hardness of heart that the Bible gives us. I totally get that. But, but while the Bible speaks of this, we actually don't honestly need the Bible to tell us. We know from experience the deep internal temptation to have our heart hardened toward God. We know this from experience. As a matter of fact, I saw this. I see this in myself, and I see this most specifically in my nine-year-old son, Caleb. I see this in him all the time. Now, in the past, I have referred to Caleb. It seems like I'm, when I'm preaching a sermon and I refer to my son, I'm always ragging on him. He's a great kid, but he is a, he is a raging sinner, okay? Just like his dad, right? But here's the thing. I, with my son, Caleb, my son, Caleb, I don't know if your kids have something like this, but my son, Caleb, has this, this thing, this thing about him where he, he gets an idea in his head and he thinks it's a great idea and all of a sudden it develops in his head and it steamrolls and it snowballs and he has concluded that whatever idea has popped in his head is going to happen no matter what. He hasn't clued us in on what the idea is at all. He's saying that, like, this is going to happen, whatever idea that came in his head. Now, the most recent one was he got this great idea that at Christmas, he got a $40 gift card to Target, and he's on Target online, Target.com, and he's looking, and he finds this Lego TIE fighter from Star Wars. Now, the other day, he sees this, and he gets in his mind that, oh, I know what we're going to do today. I'm going to use my $40 gift card. I'm going to go out to Target. We're going to go to Target tonight. Mom and dad are going to drop everything that they're doing. Any agenda that mom and dad had or schedule for the rest of the day is now out the window because my wants, my needs, and my desires are most important. And he engineered this entire scenario in his head without telling us. And then when he finally approached me after school one day, he said, Dad, are we going to Target now? And I was like, dude, what are you talking about? And then as he unfolded a little bit of what was going on in his mind, I listened to him, and I knew he had stuff going on that night. And I responded to him. I said, hey, buddy, no. (laughs) No. We're not going to do that tonight. And guys, 
I could see it in his eyes. I could see the, his, the complexion on his face. It was like his eyes were a window into this hardening that was beginning to develop in his heart toward me and our relationship. Like, this hardening was projected out through his eyes and his facial expression. I knew it. I knew that this little guy began to doubt my love for him, my care for him, my concern for him. I could tell that his heart was becoming calloused, stony and calcified toward my voice of concern and love for him in his life. And we interacted and I got, I got a little frustrated started to get angry and I removed myself from the situation and I turned to God and I said, God, why did you give me this situation to deal with? And it was in that moment that I realized, man, that principle is at work in me. That principle is at work in me. That when I don't get what I want or when I don't get what I feel like I should deserve, man, I find this dark, enslaving power at work in me to harden me to the desires of God for my life. Now, the Old Testament prophets, the Hebrew prophets in the Old Testament, they knew very well in their interactions with God and with the people of Israel, they knew very well of this hardening principle that was at work in every single human being, this universal power of sin to harden us towards God, toward God's faithfulness and work. And as they interacted with God, they began to speak of and write about and long for a moment in the future where God might, in a dynamic, a new and unprecedented way, when God might fundamentally alter this plague of a heart of stone, and he might take that heart of stone away, and bring in a new environment, a new scenario where hearts could be pliable, moldable, fashionable again. They longed for this. One such prophet, a guy named Ezekiel, puts it especially cogently in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 through 27. Ezekiel speaks on behalf of God. God says, here's what I'm going to do, Ezekiel. Here's what I'm going to do for my people. I'm gonna take my people out of the nations, you Israel, out of the nations from which you are exiled. I'm gonna gather you from all the countries. I'm gonna bring you back into your own land. I'm gonna sprinkle clean water on you, quite possibly an agent that when sprinkled and worked into hardened material might make it pliable again. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. And God says, I'm gonna give you a new heart. I'm gonna give you new, deeply seated motivations and desires to relate with me in the way that I've always intended. I'm gonna give you a new heart. And here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna put a new spirit within you. This new spirit is the idea of having the energy, the ability, the breath, the wind, the power to be able to move on these new motivations that are infused in a new heart. He says, what? I will remove from you your, say it with me, heart of stone. And I'm going to give you, come on, say it with me, heart of flesh. I'm gonna remove your heart of stone. And I'm gonna give you a heart of flesh. Here's, gonna, here's, here's how that's gonna happen. I'm gonna put 
my very spirit in you, the spirit of God in you. And I'm going to move you to follow my decrees. And you are going to be careful to hear my word, to do my laws. Guys, as we, as we step back into the book of Romans today, we said last week that this entire series, we're going to plant our foundation, plant our feet in the book of Romans As we get back into the book of Romans today, the Apostle Paul who writes this letter to the ancient, the first century church in Rome, the Apostle Paul is going to declare that the longings of the prophets, like when is this going to happen? How is this going to happen? When, God, will you finally act on this promise to take away our hardened hearts and give us pliable, moldable, shapeable hearts again? The Apostle Paul is going to say that the dynamic moment of God's action and his faithfulness to these promises occurs in something called the gospel. That this occurs, that God has come through on his faith. He's been faithful to his promises in something he calls the gospel. And so if you brought your Bibles with you this morning, I'm going to invite you to take those out right now. And if you can make your way or turn them on, if you have it on a phone or device, and make your way out to Romans 1, 16 through 17, Romans 1, 16 through 17. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you today, that's okay. We have some Bibles under the seats in front of you. You can find Romans 1, 16 through 17 on page 782 in those Bibles. Uh, Lastly, what I would say is if you don't have a Bible to call your own, you could just take one of those Bibles under the seats in front of you, take that home with you. That's just our way of saying thank you for being here and wanting us to like put God's word, his message to you in your hands. So this is what the Apostle Paul is going to say, Romans 1, 16 through 17, about this idea of the gospel, the gospel. So Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the, he says, the gospel, this is the first time he uses it here, because it, the gospel, is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, the people of Israel, then also to the Gentile. For in this gospel, second time he uses it in the short two sentences, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Let me just pause here for a second. When Paul talks about the righteousness of God, what he is referring to is God's very own righteousness, which is a reference to God's own faithfulness to his covenant promises. God's faithfulness to his promises, promises that he made back in sections of scripture like Ezekiel chapter 36. And and Paul says that God's faithfulness to all of those promises to remove our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh has been manifested. It has shown up in something called the gospel. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And this is a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. All right, so for starters here, I think it's going to be good for us as we engage this passage a little bit more. Uh, It's going to be good for us to establish maybe a basic definition and hopefully a biblically faithful definition on this word gospel. Gospel. So we're going to start there. Uh, The gospel, gospel is actually an English word. Uh, It's an old English word that would have been uh, rendered good spell or good story. And the word gospel, this old English word, translates from the original language behind Romans 1, 16 through 17, which would have been Greek. The gospel translates a Greek word that's pronounced euangelion, euangelion. You know you want to say it with me, euangelion. Come on, euangelion. 
excellent. You guys are Greek scholars. I always knew it. So the gospel, this word, this English word translates this Greek word, euangelion, back in Romans 1, 16 through 17. And uh, basically the gospel or euangelion in Greek is kind of uh, two composite parts put together. The gospel has this, uh, or euangelion has the prefix eu, which means happy or glad or good or maybe like excitement. And actually, if you think about our English word euphoria, that prefix, euphoria means like exuberance or elation. That's literally where you get it is from this Greek prefix, meaning happy, glad, or good. And that's mixed with this second word, angelos, which means message or proclamation. Actually, if you were to take the OS off of here, you see the word angel. The word angel, this is where we get our word angel, and it literally means messenger. So the angelos is the message, euangelion, you put those two things together, and literally the euangelion or the gospel means happy message or good news. Or for those of you who like Luke 2 in the Christmas season, glad tidings of great joy, which will be for all the people. So the gospel fundamentally means happy message or good news. Now, I, while I do think this is, uh, this is helpful to establish this basic definition what I think it, this does not do, it does not give us the gravity or the significance of this term as it is used by Paul here in Romans 1 in the way that Paul would have understood this term as he was employing it to send his message to the people in this Roman church in the first century. And so I think in order to really understand the gravity or the weight of what Paul is doing here when he uses this word, what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to start thinking Okay, what would, what would a person uh, living in first century Rome, when they, hear, when they heard this word gospel, this word euangelion, what would they have been thinking? What are some connotations or ideas that would have immediately popped in their head based upon what they knew when they heard this word euangelion? Well, I'm so glad that you asked that question. I'm so glad. So now, at this point in time, what I want to do is I just want to pause for a second because, guys, I need to ask your permission for a moment, okay? And so the permission that I need to ask you is I'm going to plead with you just to give me three, four, maybe five minutes to give you a little bit of a history lesson, okay? A history lesson. And some of you are, like, groaning because you're like, my heart is hard toward history. Like, I hated history growing up. Like, I had a terrible middle school teacher or just always seemed boring and it seemed irrelevant. Like, how is that applicable to my life? I totally get it. Now, just rest assured that there's going to be no quiz, okay? No quiz, no tests, no examination on this. But I think if you can just stick with me, if you can just allow me to give you just a short history lesson, I think it is going to have massive payoff. It is massively significant to understanding how Paul uses this word in Romans chapter one. So I need your permission and not just to allow me to elaborate on a history lesson for four to five minutes. I'm asking your permission. Like, would you guys please just like dial in for a second and really engage this history lesson, like connect with it, okay? Can, can, can I get you to do that? Is that okay? Is that okay? Again, I'm very insecure, so is that okay? Okay, excellent. So history lesson. All right, here's what you need to know. When Paul wrote this letter to the Roman church, um, he was no less than about 85 years removed from Caesar Augustus, a guy also who was called Octavian, from Caesar, and here's a bust of him from ancient Roman society, ancient Roman art. Uh, Paul was no less than 85 years removed from Caesar Augustus winning the decisive battle against his enemies, Antony and Cleopatra, at the Battle of Actium, which occurred in 31 BC. 
So you can see this artist rendering here. It was a, very much a naval battle, and you can see some of the armaments and the different strategies and the tactics that Augustus took against Antony and Cleopatra. But suffice it to say that at Actium in, in uh, 31 BC, um, Augustus wins this decisive victory against Antony and Cleopatra. Now, prior to him winning this battle, what you need to know is that Rome, the Roman Empire, had been engrossed in a number of civil wars, like civil war after civil war after civil war, for decades upon decades. So this means that when Augustus finally defeated his enemies, Antony and Cleopatra, he had in effect secured a peace and a prosperity and a new lifestyle that the people living in Rome at that time had never knew within their lifetime. And so as the victorious Augustus moved away from Actium, as he paraded his battle, as he took them across the Rubicon River and entered into Rome, as Augustus was paraded in the streets to the shouts of Roman citizens on either side of Main Street in Rome, celebrating his victory, Caesar comes to the capital city, Rome, and he assumes the throne over the Roman Empire. And Caesar eventually is installed. He is given the title, the Latin title Imperator, which means emperor. Caesar Augustus is installed as emperor over the empire. Now, listen to me. Augustus's accession or accession to the throne, his ascension, was not merely the case of some new guy coming to power who would then work with the Roman Senate to establish a bunch of laws and enforce those laws. As it was so much bigger and more significant than that. Caesar's enthronement, Augustus Caesar's enthronement, signaled, catch this, the dawn of a new era in human history. That, that the ancient writers, the ancient Roman writers had written about and anticipated a climactic moment when their gods and goddesses would work through a human agent to bring about the destiny of Rome and the destiny of the world, like the world was going to be a different place. Augustus' enthronement signified that there was a dawn of a new era in history. That because Augustus was on the throne, there was now a new order to society. Which meant that if you were living in Augustus' empire, there was also the new possibility of a new life. We might even say a new lifestyle. That there were new hopes and possibilities that had not been previously available to the people in the Roman Empire. And so Augustus was so shrewd because he leveraged this ancient narrative and expectation of the Roman people. He leveraged that narrative in such a critical way. He gathered with him the artists, the poets, and he gathered them to his court, these ancient Roman court poets. And he began to craft this narrative with language like peace, Caesar has brought stability and peace. Caesar has brought hope where we previously had none, which is interesting to me because this is the same language. Man, there's nothing new under the sun. This is the same language that we hear. It's the rhetoric of empire that we've heard last November in our own American political elections. The promise of peace, the narrative of prosperity, and the narrative they crafted was this, simply this. Because Augustus was on the throne, because he was the rightful ruler and lord of the world, because he had defeated his enemies and was now in charge, a new power for living life had been unleashed into the world, 
unleashed for those who were under Caesar's rule, unleashed for those who would pledge themselves and their loyalty to Caesar and to his agenda. And the word that they would have used in first century Rome to describe that loyalty and allegiance to connect with Caesar's empire and all the hopes of peace and prosperity that that would bring, the word that was used was faith. We're gonna trust Caesar because he's the king. He's in charge. He has brought us peace. He has brought us welfare, hope, and prosperity. So, what does this have to do with gospel? What does this have to do with how Paul uses <laughs> euangelion in Romans 1? Well, guys, I think this all clicks into place when you realize that the one word that was used by everyone in the first century to describe Caesar's enthronement in his reign and all the quote-unquote hopes and possibilities that a connection to his reign by faith might bring for the people in the empire, the one word that you would use over and over was this word, euangelion, gospel. Good news! Caesar's in charge. Life as it was always intended is available and possible for those who would affiliate themselves with Caesar's reign. And Augustus, in association with this gospel, took to himself various titles that would signify this good news and this announcement, this declaration of who Caesar was in his reign. Caesar took the title son of God, which meant the divinely approved human king who was acting on behalf of Rome's gods and goddesses to bring peace and welfare to the empire. Caesar took the title Lord. Caesar and his successors took the title Lord. It's the supreme ruler. And this supreme ruler is owed the allegiance of everyone within the empire. Caesar took the title Savior in that he was the conquering warrior who would bring new life and prosperity. Caesar took the title high priest. This is like my favorite. In Latin, it's Pontifex Maximus, literally the maximum or the maxi big priest who would mediate the relationship between the Roman gods and the citizens of his empire. That because Caesar was on the throne, Caesar had claimed to inaugurate a new way of life and freedom for all in empire with all these titles. And that anyone who would affiliate themselves with Caesar could experience his salvation and rescue by responding to him in faith. Guys, look at this. What does Paul say? Paul writes to a group of Christ followers in Caesar's capital city, right under Caesar's nose, and what does he declare? Guys, isn't this powerful? It's like, guys, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel about Caesar? No. This is a different gospel. The gospel about Jesus, the enthroned and resurrected Lord of the world. See, Paul has already articulated his gospel right at the outset of the letter to the Romans. Like Paul, literally, he defies common literary conventions of letter writing in his day. 
He dispenses with the pleasantries at the beginning of this letter, and he goes in full bore, full force, and he gives the Roman church and us his gospel, his declaration, his announcement, his proclamation. Paul says, I am a servant, not of Caesar, not of Lord Caesar, but of Christ Jesus. Paul says, I'm called to be an apostle. All an apostle meant was it was an emissary. It was a herald. It was one who was commissioned by a king to go out into foreign lands to speak of and declare the good rule of the king that he served. Paul says, I'm called to be an apostle. I'm set apart for what? Not Caesar's gospel, but the good news of God, the one he promised beforehand, the gospel he promised beforehand through guys like Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36. Through his prophets in the sacred writings, the holy scriptures, the Old Testament. This gospel is regarding God's very own son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. That God had promised the ancient Israelite King David that one day when he moved in a dynamic way to remove sin and to remove death, he would do so through the offspring of David who would rule in an everlasting and enduring reign. And who through the spirit of holiness was appointed son of God in power by virtue of his resurrection from the dead. Now this word resurrection here, it's loaded. But for Paul, resurrection is a signal of enthronement. That God looked at what Jesus did in his life and in his death, and he said, that's the kind of king that I want to rule in partnership with me over my people. The one who will bring peace and goodness and prosperity and everything that I want for my people. So what, I'm, what am I going to do? This king was dead. I'm going to raise him from the dead. This is an indication that Jesus has been enthroned and installed as king over all. He was declared son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our, say it! Our Lord, say it, our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles, both Jews, but also everybody, the Gentiles, to what? The obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. The obedience, the loyalty, the allegiance, the commitment to Jesus, the Messiah's good rule and his good reign. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. Paul's gospel confronts and subverts the arrogant claims of Caesar. Paul's gospel says that all these things about Caesar are just cheap fabrications and imitations of the real deal that God promised that not Caesar Augustus, but Jesus Christ crucified on the cross is son of God. He's the divinely approved human king. He is the one who is acting on behalf of God the Father to bring real peace, to put everything that was broken in God's creation and set it right again. That Jesus Christ, not Caesar, is Lord of the world. He's the divine ruler. He's the one who is owed our faith, our allegiance for everyone who would come underneath the blessings of his kingdom. That Jesus elsewhere in the New Testament all throughout is called Savior. Oh man, he is the conquering warrior. He doesn't just defeat Antony and Cleopatra in a naval battle in 31 BC. He has defeated the true enemy. He is defeated and conquered sin and death, and he brings by his resurrection life salvation to all who would affiliate themselves with him by faith. That Jesus, especially for the author of Hebrews, is the high priest. 
He is the sender of the Holy Spirit, the one who mediates between God and his kingdom citizens. For Paul, the gospel is this subversive, provocative, world-transforming story. It's a narrative, but it's not just about us and our salvation. It is fundamentally and exclusively a narrative, the story, the declaration, and the proclamation about Jesus. For Paul, the gospel can be put together in a nutshell, is that Jesus is Lord. Amen. And notice how in Romans 1, 16 through 17, look at what Paul says about this gospel. That when this gospel is preached, when it is announced, when it is declared and heralded, or heralded, when the story about Jesus is uttered, he says this gospel is the power of God that brings salvation. Now notice what Paul says. He says it is the power of God unleashed in the world that brings about the salvation of all who would respond by faith. Paul does not say that the gospel, when it is uttered or declared, somehow at some moment, at some point in time, may happen to be the power of God that results in the rescue of human beings from hard-heartedness into hearts that are pliable. No, Paul says that the gospel itself, and do you see this? When it is preached, it is God's very power unleashed into the world. In other words, we could put it like this. When the message of Jesus' power, authority, and his enthronement, when his resurrection is announced, man, a genuine, supernatural transformation, power is unleashed that occurs, that will occur in those who respond to that message by putting their trust and their faith in this good king, in Jesus. And the spirit works to then soften hearts and people are saved, rescued from sin and death in the gospel Simply declaring the story about Jesus out loud, God's power is unleashed and people can become saved from the power of sin and death. Guys, in the gospel, there is power for God to work in that radical, new, unprecedented way that the prophets longed for, that God will take our hearts of stone. He will make them pliable and moldable again so that God can form us and shape us into the image of this same son and the image of this king. Now, if you're like me, I'm asking the question, okay, if the gospel somehow, if the gospel announced and declared, is God's power at work to bring people into new life? How does that work? How does that function? What what exactly happens? What is it about the gospel that unleashes that power? Now listen to me, I'm gonna tell you with all the Bible education that I have, with all the seminary training, with the fact that I've been a pastor for about 12 years and all of it and my experience, I'm gonna tell you exactly how that works. Exactly how that works. Ready? I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea how a Christ follower who is just faithful to declare truth about Jesus is able to unleash God's new creation power to bring us from death to life. I have literally no idea of the mechanics of how that works. 
But here's what I do know. I just know that Paul is convinced, he is absolutely convinced that this is what happens when the gospel is preached. When we decide to fix the spotlight on Jesus and to tell his story, God's power is at work. I know that from Paul, but I also know that from me in my life. 35 years ago, a six-year-old boy going to church on a Wednesday night with his parents. Fifth row back, fifth pew back. We had pews back then. Left-hand side, middle of the pew. Mom on my left, dad on my right. And a man standing behind a pulpit declaring the truth about Jesus. It was a six-year-old boy who had no business understanding anything of what this guy was saying about Jesus. And yet, when this man declared the truth about Christ, my life was changed forever. Completely transformed. Not because he was a good speaker. Not because he had great rhetorical skill. Not because he gave me a good sales pitch. I was six. Because he was faithful to preach the story of Jesus and God's power got a hold of me and his spirit worked and I was never the same. Listen, just as a side note, for those of you who are part of the Medina East Campus and you know about our Here We Go initiative and our our resolute commitment to invest in the next generation, I have to plead with you, I have to plead with you that we don't let the next generation not hear the gospel. We have to tell them about Jesus. We have to declare the truth about his kingship and his lordship because when we do, the same power that rescued a six-year-old boy 35 years ago is at work when we declare it to rescue those we love and care for and raise up the next generation. It's the power the gospel at work. I love how one theologian says it, Scott McKnight. He summarizes, he says, herein lies one of the mysteries of the gospel. In declaring the good news about Jesus, God's spirit is at work to awaken us to faith. And this awakening leads to a new transformed This transformation process, it doesn't happen all at once. But God is indeed at work with his power in us and through us to take what we were hard-hearted to become what we will be, like Jesus. I love the way McKnight puts it here because he says, yeah, God's power is at work for a person who had never placed their faith in Christ When the gospel is announced, God's power is at work to literally bring them over from death to life to make their hard heart pliable and moldable and shapeable again. But McKnight also points to the fact that even if you've been following Jesus for 75 years, he says the road to becoming Christ-like, the way that we get formed into the image of Christ is through the gospel of Jesus Christ preaching the gospel to ourselves daily 
all the time, never letting it get out of our sight. Because God is at work in us and through us to take what we were, to continually transform us to what we will be. And the response for all and everyone is increased faith and trust and loyalty, pledging ourselves to this good king. I'm gonna invite the band up and uh, we're gonna close out. And uh, we're gonna do something a little bit different here this morning. Um, So if you're a guest here, this is not kind of our normal fare. But in a moment, I'm going to just ask you to stand and I'm going to uh, simply do this. Like if we believe that this is true, if the gospel message declared is God's power unleashed for transformation, then all I wanna do is I just wanna declare the gospel out loud again to all of us. And here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. It's gonna be simple, but it's not gonna be easy. Here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. I just want to invite you to bring all of who you are to this gospel. Every part of you, every part of you. Your sin, your hard heart, your bitterness, your anger toward God and others who inflicted incalculable pain in your life. I want you to bring your circumstances. I want you to bring the fact that you might not even acknowledge you have a hard heart. I want you to bring the tragedy that you're working through in your life right now. Here's what I want us to do. I want us to bring all of us to be positioned in front of the gospel. And let's just allow the truth about the risen, resurrected, enthroned Lord of the world to wash over us again, to allow God's power by his spirit to work in us, to respond in faith. Would you stand with me? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. This is the gospel. He promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our It's through him that we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Christ Jesus.